sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City limits. Good morning. Morning. How's it going? Okay. Corey Green over there. I'm Kevin Healy. Emma Warren, two weeks on the show. She come come up sick. Mm. Well, we should do that to people. <laughs> but she'll be back next week, let's hope. And if she's listening, uh, Emma, I hope you are okay. Mm. And a pity because we've got Kate Shaw on this morning, and I'm sure Emma would have enjoyed talking to Kate. But Kate, of course, is in the planning department at um, – she's a senior fellow or something. I can't – she'll tell us what her title is again. <laughs> Always forget it. Um, at, at Melbourne. But she, um, as we keep saying, Kate went into academic planning via – on grassroots activity with Save St Kilda and Save the SB and all that stuff. In fact, I first met her back in those days when she was in all those campaigns. So um, we're going to talk to Kate about it. But one important one, actually, she she's writing a book at the moment comparing housing affordability and housing provision in um, Germany, Australia and Canada. And um, she's been in Berlin in the last few months and... Um, it talks about the way that they provide housing there, which is so much different to ours. The majority of people don't own their homes because they don't have to, and you have long-term rentals, etc. So we're going to talk those issues through mm. and what related to what's needed here to get to some of those solutions. So that should be an interesting discussion, which we'll go to fairly shortly. But, Corey, I, I, I sympathise with you, and I know you've been upset all week because you rang me on Friday very upset, almost in tears after you'd done your daily reading of the Australian Financial Review. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you looked at the front page and was shattered. It's actually a modern uh, form of self-flagellation. Yes, yes. Well, you certainly, it was self-flagellation in your case on Friday because you looked at it and, and it said, why is a $23,000 Audi in Auckland, 35000 in Sydney? And you rang me and said, why have I got to pay 35000 for a second-hand Audi when I can get it for twenty three grand in New Zealand? I know, it's an outrage. Absolute outrage. And uh, and also it pollutes more because it's a Volkswagen car anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so probably better not to buy it. But anyway, that, that, that's beside the point. But um, yeah, that's the sort of front-page news they have there because, well, their readership would be most upset by that. And in fact, mm, if you go mm. inside... Um, if you go inside, you can get a Mercedes for one fifty-five thousand in New Zealand and two eighty-nine here. Oh, that's good. Because um, when I next go to New Zealand, I'll buy two Mercedes. Oh, we'll bring one back. And the other one here, I can't make out what it is. It might be a Porsche or something. I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know these cars, but it's it's, it's another luxury car, one forty-five and two one nine here. But I can I know the Mercedes Zim Zimble thing on that one, but the other one's got me beaten. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, there you are. So I knew you'd be upset about that. Just. Just devastated. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm also upset about um, not being able to afford housing or a garage. That's right, <laughs> to put the car in. <laughs> put the car in, exactly. <laughs> well, you could at least make the car safe at night and you could sleep outside the garage yourself. Mm. I'm going to pour a cup of tea. We've only got one today because you're not drinking a tea at the moment, so I've only got one with yeah. Emma not here. Just, so I hope people Aww. can hear that. There we are. Cup of tea. Cup of tea, very uh, good. Yeah, what sort of tea do we have today? Just straight jasmine today. Straight okay. jasmine, yeah. Um, uh, McDonald's has had another victory. Uh, yes, they've, they've won the Worst of the Decade um, award from the uh, Parents' Voice 10th Annual Fame and Shame Awards uh, hmm. for their um, promotion to kids. Uh, they just beat they just beat Coca-Cola and KFC, but they got up and won it. So isn't that wonderful? Mm, they do have so, very kid-positive uh, yeah. marketing. Yeah, that's right. Well, they love kids. They they love. They them. look after kids with cancer. They love them. Yeah, have you ever noticed the fact that like the Ronald McDonald House is actually funded by customers giving their spare change? So, <laughs> and then McDonald's takes the credit for it. <laughs> yes, I have noticed that. <laughs> so much out of everything you give them goes I know. to whatever. It means they put no, the no, price no. up in the first place. It's not even so much of everything out of how much you give them. It's they have little. You know, their contribution is is having tins on the counter that you can put money in as a customer. Oh, I, I, haven't, I don't go into them, so I didn't realise that, no. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, no. That's, that's how Ronald McDonald... That's how McDonald's is, is, is aiding Ronald McDonald House. Oh, well, I, I can proudly you, say that nothing from McDonald's model. has ever passed my lips, I must admit. Never, ever. There you go. And it never will. I used to like uh, it when I was a kid, yeah. and then when I was drunk, which is a lot like being a yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did have 
Kentucky Fried when they first came out. I used to have, but you you realise very quickly it probably wasn't chicken in the first place. But <laughs> but I've never eaten McDonald's. I must admit. No, oh, there you go. You've missed out on a awful cultural experience. No, I haven't. Well, it's awful. Yeah, you're right. Awful cultural experience. Um, now I'm going to make a quote. Um, to you and see if you can pick. I'm going to make two quotes, in fact, mm-hmm. um, and see if you can pick who says these things. Can we call this game Karl pick Marx or Tony Abbott? Yes, yes, that's right. Karl Marx or Tony Abbott. Guess what? It's two Tony Abbotts. But anyway, um, uh, this person says as his most important obligation, this is a CEO of a company, mm-hmm. is to do everything within my control to foster a safe and healthy work environment where no one is hurt, a tall order. To deliver on this requires commitment and trust in the people who work for me. I need to know they share the same obligation and have developed a healthy level of mutual trust with their direct reports so they are fully engaged, etc., etc. He just loves people, you see. And he goes on to say, um, the, the best leaders is not about what people have done in their lives. It's about their character. It's about who they are, what drives them, what motivates them, how humble they are, how supportive they are of their people, how aware they are of their own brokenness and how they use that brokenness to learn and grey. At your funeral, would you want the commenters to detail your resume of wealth, fame and status or would you prefer they discuss your kindness, bravery, honesty and faithfulness? Which is more enduring? And he concludes saying, character and eulogy virtues are not the easier path. In fact, they are often the road less taken, but in my mind, the road worth taking. Who do you, which wonderfulest, obviously wonderful person said that? Well, given how humble the person is, mm-hmm. I feel like it's definitely a Gandhi quote. <sighs> Am I close? No, in fact, you're so far off the mark, it doesn't matter. It's Mike Kane, the head of Boral, the bloke who's led to these people being, the, the unionists being charged this week. Ah. Um, for um, secondary boycotts against Boral because they're fighting over safety issues, but he cares all about safety. But he, Mike, who, who also won the the AF, the Financial Review's Business Person of the Year last year for his fight against the unions, that's him, Mike Kane. So he's a, as we now know, he's a really a wonderful man who cares. It's oh, well, that's beautiful. Just incidental that he's had a couple of unionists charged for fighting over health issues, health and safety issues. I was very touched by that. Yeah, there you are. So that's Mike. Now, this one, this one. Okay. Here we go. Okay, okay. Uh, Australia should set up a nuclear waste disposal and storage facility because it will be economically lucrative and enhance the nation's standing on the world stage. My personal view, it's a no-brainer. The argument for that is economically attractive. Um, He goes on to say... Uh, you would unquestionably stand very tall in the international community. That's if you took everyone else's waste and buried it here. I've always believed that nuclear has to be part of the solution. The upfront costs are very... That's that's about the other. But overall, nuclear energy is an important solution for the world as it battles climate change and a mature debate is required about the best way to to utilise it. I think it's time we just grew up a bit. Okay, Uh, I'm on to this one. I'm on to this one. Yeah. All right, all right. Former lead singer of Midnight Oil, Peter Garrett. No, but could have been Pete because he also, opened, after, after leading the party, he, he then went and opened uranium mines. But this person, you'll be pleased to know, uh, was a former chairman of the International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament. Uh, and it's a former foreign minister of Australia who did wonderful things for, for um, Timor-Leste, by totally supporting uh, the Indonesian occupation. occupation. No, no, de, de, jure, de jure occupation. He used to call it de jure. Gareth Evans. Gareth now Evans. Now Professor Evans. Gareth Is he Evans. still alive? Yes, he's Professor Evans, and he, he, he said that. So you'll be pleased to hear that how was can, Gareth. How can he release a statement from a point of being cryogenically frozen? I don't know. But anyway, Gareth, uh, well, Gareth, I mean, he used to be one of the great features of the week that was for a long time when he mm. was foreign minister and the jure thing. Like uh, Our favourite phrase was, de jure in de crown is the oil in the ocean. Ah. Uh, with Gareth saying, de jure in de crown is the oil. Um, he was known as grovelling good Evans on the week that was for years. And uh, anyway, he's come back. That's his latest. He now supports that. Isn't that wonderful? Amazing. Yes, that's it. I thought you'd be pleased with that one. Um, now, I'm going to have another sip of tea. Here we go. 
Ah, wonderful. Great radio, great radio. Now, oh, that's radio at its best. <laughs> the, the, uh, now, a couple of things about unions and industry. Um, you'll be pleased to know that the state government, like when the car companies are going out, the workers are going to be left on the, on the scrap heap. Now, I would have thought after all those years in Australia and all the government subsidies they've had, the massive, you know, the car plan, which is just handing public money to car companies, mm-hmm. and, you know, the biggest companies in the world, uh, that redundancy and, 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 and when they leave, all, that's, all they have to do to, to help the workers um, f- subsequently ought to be paid by them, do you think? Well... The state government has just put up $46.5 million to help workers and supply businesses hit by the mass exodus of the car industry. So while we, we can't afford public housing, we can't afford all sorts of things, the hospitals are struggling, $46.5 million mm-hmm. for the car, for, well, subsidy to the car company effectively uh, because they're walking away and the workers are going to be on the scrapping. But I, don't, I think the workers should be helped, but not by the public purse. They should be helped by the... Oh, you might disagree with that. You might think the public purse has a role here. Could we do? Um, well, given all the money that we've given the car companies, couldn't we just nationalise them? We could indeed, and we could. If they can't, the cars aren't making money, we could make buses, trains, trams in the same equipment. I'm sure a small adjustment would make sure you could use it for the same purpose. Tesla cars. Tesla cars, we could indeed. That's right. You can put a big power plant at the top and red. No, that's right. No, that's right. Um, <laughs> make Tesla cars with solar energy on the roof. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other one this week, of course, that came out was the tax office uh, said that uh, parents of rich kids are using offshore bank accounts to pay for their school fees, their private <laughs> school fees, to the you know the, the the big private schools, and also to buy luxury cars and luxury goods. And they say it's a way they use by planting this money offshore so it can't be taxed. It's a way of bringing it back into the company com- uh, and using it by. Uh, writing checks for these offshore, offshore, or you know, checks or whatever you do now, just transferring the money mm. um, via these things. But the tax department's looking at it and may in fact uh, hit them for um, may hit them. I mean, we know that these things drag out, and companies just keep dragging it out in court long enough to make sure nothing really happens. But isn't it interesting that uh, they're using these things now for all that? So anyway, they've been exposed for that. Um, it shows uh, um, what an incredible amount of money school fees must be. Yes, that's right. Well, they uh, they are. They're quite expensive. But the end result is you get a, a young person like the Stavia College boys recently who said to all the other kids at the pri- public schools, you know, wait till we're your boss and we'll get you sort of thing. Remember that? Um, and another a report, though, by the Australia Institute, which is sort of the left-wing think tank. Uh, well, not sort of. It is you know, in terms of Australian think tanks anyway. It says that a five cents in the dollar cut to company tax, which they're talking about, would deepen the deficit and cost the economy a fortune. Um, and they assess that among the biggest winners from reduced company tax would be the already super profitable big banks, which would secure another $2 billion in profits per year for their shareholders, and the biggest coal producers, while advocates say it would attract investment and increase jobs by rewarding initiative, the analysis suggests the lion's share of the benefits would accrue at the top end of the business chain where profits are strong anyway, and it then lists the amount of money the banks have made. Now, having listed the amount of money the banks have made, we know that recently the banks... Uh, without the the Reserve Bank doing anything about interest rates, put them up anyway and said they had to because it was all part of the business, etc., etc., as you recall. But last week, they very quietly not only put up the rate they charge people, but they cut the rate they pay people for, for investing in the for deposits in the bank. So three of the country's big banks quietly cut interest rates for online savings accounts last month as lenders try to limit a crunch, etc. But again, it's about profit margins, etc. So isn't that wonderful? I think that yeah. we should uh, go to a track. How do you feel about that? I think we should go to a track. All right. Okay, this uh, track is Black, Strong and Proud by Arakin. All right, that was Arakin with Black, Strong and Proud. Good on them. Um, just on that theme we were on just before, by the way, you'll be about taxes, etc. Um, they've also, under the Labor government, they attempted to find some tax solution. When they, One solution was that you cut corporate tax, but then you get rid of a lot of the concessions that, gov- that, that businesses get um, 
Mm-hmm. And that's been recommended again recently under this government, but business has come out and said it's far too complicated, it can't happen, it's, we've got to stop all this, it's ridiculous. And I thought that was very good. But Hardy's, Hardy, you'll be pleased to know, Hardy uh, just announced a, a profit of... Um, a profit of what I can't know how many billion it was um eighty one point no no seven ninety seven ninety nine or ninety no hang on a hundred and ninety nine billion a year i think it's uh, it's made um but it this year it was unable to make a contribution to the compensation the asbestos compensation that means the public purse again will have to pick that up so poor old hardys mm. and bhp billiton you'll be pleased to know that billiton and vale their associate company with the tragedy in brazil they're now saying that they're they're looking for other sources of private, public and non-government funding to help pay for environmental and social mitigation. So now they want, again, other people, including the public purse, to meet their obligations for the damage they've caused. So it's all going well, isn't it? It's going so wonderfully well. And are uh, they also talking about changing their business practices to not cause any further damage? Pardon? I'm well, sorry. I, they already have. I mean, they've always said that can't happen. And if it happens, it shouldn't happen, but it did. But then next time, they'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Oh, I'm just even talking about your your basic business practices, like burning coal in a power station. Oh, please, please. <laughs> I mean, that that little black rock can save the world from poverty. You've got to realise that. Yeah. You think that um would have done it by now? Um, We'd certainly burn enough of it. Yes, it, it would have if they had realised early enough it can save the world from poverty, but they didn't realise while they are making all that money. Uh, so, but did suddenly they, they realised. It can save the world from poverty, but we're not going to do it? Uh, that's that's one of the that's one of the possibilities. There are three possibilities. It mm-hmm. can save the world. We're not going to do it. It can save the world. We're not going to do it. Or it can save the world. We're not going to do it. So any one of those three, it could be. Or it can't save the world. Uh, that's another one. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. They, indeed, the premise has to be challenged. I suggest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Anyway, another another clever ruse you've got is if you're really causing lots of trouble or getting into, into the deep, um, like uh, Transfield did um, over its its um, Nauru and and um, Manus Island um, refugee prisons and mm. the way it treats people, just mm. change the name. So they're now called Broad Spectrum. Broad spectrum. Um, yeah, broad spectrum. That sounds like an and, antibiotic. Yeah, so, and you know, sort of, you hope that you hope that you know, in time, they'll forget who we really are, sort of thing. So, so Diane Smith Gander, who's the chairwoman of the company, they call a chairwoman here. That's interesting. Um, they they've actually now they're now using using um, um, IT stuff to monitor Facebook and Twitter profiles of people who might attack the company. Um, over the recent period with Broad Spectrum, we were dealing with activists who were trying to use us as a tool of change in government policy, which was not our role and clearly not a debate we're going to step into. And uh, so, were those activists trying to use Broad Spectrum uh, sunscreen while they were? Oh, one picketing? can one can only imagine because, um, and, and you know, they point out that. Uh, head of the annual general meeting, which was pu- publicly targeted by social activists, no business in abuse and get up, company secretary Angelique Nesbitt took charge to make sure the chairwoman was not caught by surprise when a banner was unfurled and her speech to shareholders interrupted. And how, how outrageous that would be! Mm. People have asked me how I kept my cool, but I wasn't surprised at all because the company secretary had been working with our security people, matching Facebook pages, Twitter feeds, and so forth, and the names of people registered as proxies. So I knew who the proxy holders who were going to get up and try and disrupt the meeting were. Broad Spectrum regularly uses social media to scout out likely troublemakers ahead of other public events. Likewise, I gave a speech at the University of Western Australia and there were activists in that room and the same thing. The attendance list had been washed against the Facebook page and a security person was positioned to identify that person when they came in. I was handed a piece of paper that said, It's Taylor 17. She's the person in the red leather jacket. And it goes on. Other companies do it well. BHP Billiton spoke on the same panel. The mining giant is facing, we know about the San Marco thing, we just talked about it, um, and they're also monitoring people. And, and the company um, secretary declined to comment on the crisis but revealed she is speaking to, to Jack Nasser, that's the chairperson, more often than usual, and they're also uh, monitoring for people who might get upset about the fact that they've just poisoned an entire environment. So isn't so that interesting? Planet. Isn't that interesting well, how I they think, do all that? You know, if the whole thing's making her feel unwell, she should 
take a broad spectrum Poor antibiotic. Diane. You've got a feel for it, haven't you? Um, meanwhile, though, while uh-huh. people are being charged, and we'll finish on this note, um, all that, um, as far as I know, there's no laws being introduced to stop any of that happening. That, that's all just normal business practice, what they're all doing. Mm. Secondary boycotts, which effectively is what these union officials are being charged with, that's what got them. They, you know, mm. they went for Boral to get Grollo, which workers have done for years until they brought in laws that made it illegal. So you bring yeah. in a law, make it illegal, and away Gillard you go. Gillard brought in those laws too. Right. So much for being in the yeah. Labor Party well, and being in the Labor Left to faction. To Reith and Co. as well, yeah, they all brought them in. But they're now talking about increasing the maximum penalty for secondary boycotts from the current $750,000 to $10 million. So, and I mentioned two weeks ago, they want to actually lower the penalty on companies that don't put superannuation into the workers' accounts, um, and they want to increase secondary boycotts against unions and workers from seven fifty thousand to ten million dollars. Isn't that wonderful? I keep saying, isn't that wonderful? Because it is. <laughs> uh, I just think you know, when it gets to ten million dollars, you've just got to be like, I'm not going to pay it. Like, you've just got to do another huge, massive strike of. Thousands of people and they can't jail them all. I think they should have stopped from the outset. They should have just said, we're not going to recognise any of these laws. Yeah, um, that's what I, I reckon yeah, too. Uh, and indeed, I should have boycotted, I think, the uh, the Royal Commission. Mm. And I read recently where unions have had to pay millions in legal fees. Just to, I mean, it's just that's costing them a fortune regardless of what the final penalties are. Mm, mm. And that's what it's all about, of course, to smash them. So Yeah. Yeah, but I agree with you. I think... I think and I know unions aren't as strong as they used to be, say, in the Clary O'Shea days when they did do that and broke um, and broke a law, the secondary boycott stuff at that time. Mm. It was the law of 45D, I think was the law it was called. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I agree. It, it, they just say no and, and then let, let it take its course, see what happens. Yeah. See if they can arrest every single unionist yeah, in Australia. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's get down to a bit of housing stuff and a bit of uh, Berlin, Canada, Australia. We'll talk to Kate Shaw after this break. Okay. Um, this time for real, we've got a Serengeti and Polyvonic Spree with Don't Give Up. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM. This is not all just a dream. Uh, you might be listening on 3cr.org.au and that was Serengeti and Polyphonic Spree with Don't Give Up. Well, let's hope Kate Shaw didn't give up listening. No, it's wonderful, actually. Um, and uh, she's still on the line on the other, other end there, Kate Shaw. Of course, Kate, your title these days, research something or other, what are you, what are you called at Melbourne? Oh, you ask me this every oh, time. No, I, well, I, 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 I know. It goes straight through my head. Yeah, um, yeah. It, look, it, I'm, I'm a future fellow. It's a scheme um, that um, comes out of the Australian Research Council. Um, so, you know, I am the future, uh, standing right here, so look and be afraid. Um, All right, yes. Does that mean that they're going to, um, like, give you proper wages and conditions in the future, or do you get those now? I get them now. Oh, yeah. I, excellent. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's, it's a bit weird. I mean, I am the future, and I am paid well, and I get proper conditions now. Um, who knows what, <laughs> what will happen in the future? Um, <laughs> But, anyway, but, but, but don't worry about that. Just call me an urban geographer. Yeah, the urban geographer. That's, that's my That's, my that's it, urban geographer, Kate Shaw. That's her. Um, on the other end there. Kate, I thought I'd cheer you up, though, at the start of this because about affordable housing and you know how people can empathise and know, understand the problems. I mentioned this to someone on the programme two weeks ago. You'll be pleased to know that Scott Morrison, our treasurer, says his family's mortgage, mortgage helps him understand the hard work of paying off a home loan. So... Does that cheer you up a bit about housing problems? Yes, of course it does. They look like they're, they're, they're a compassionate lot, aren't they, our politicians? I noticed Joe Hockey's off to Washington. Yes. Um, after, after lambasting everybody for the age of entitlement. Uh, <laughs> yes, well, he's got his entitlement. He, yeah. uh, it's, Why do they keep giving Scott Morrison more and more power? It's not like he does a particularly yeah, good yeah. job. I can't tell you the answer. I don't know. No. It's more rhetorical, I suppose. Yeah. Kate, um, there's so many things to talk about, but you recently um, you've been overseas. You went to, uh, you've been in Germany, you've been in Greece. Let's just start very briefly with Greece. You were there for the election. Have you got any thoughts on that? Reflection? Um, I was there just after the referendum. Um, Which of the many referendums are we talking about? The, the last one, the no. And um, what was the issue on? 
the issue was whether um, uh, whether whether the Greeks should accept the um, the, the the rather punitive package That's that right. the EU was offering it in, in return for. Uh, a bailout, because basically the country was running out of cash. Um, so, and they they uh, voted no, and it, a week later the government government gave them a yes. Well, yeah, I mean, and it was, well, look, it was terribly, terribly complicated. Um, and I, I I felt terribly sorry for Cyprus, the, um, the Prime Minister, who clearly was put under an, an enormous amount of pressure. I mean, um, Varoufakis, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Australian-born uh, mm. um, treasurer uh, of, um, of, of the party of Syriza, said, uh, equated what Cyprus, the president had gone through, uh, the prime minister had gone through to, uh, to waterboarding um, with, with uh, you know, various, you know, Merkel, uh, uh, you know, um, the, the head of the the EU, the head of the, the uh, European Central Bank, sort of coming in one after another, after another, after another. So something like, I mean, it seemed like it was a very long, 15 hours or some such, just putting enormous pressure on him. And you can imagine the kind of things they would have been saying. It's like, if you don't get this bailout, you, you are going to oversee the collapse of the cradle of civilization. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it was terribly, terribly difficult stuff. So... Um, he agreed to some pretty punitive um, austerity measures, um, which he argues weren't as bad as those that were um, being offered prior to the uh, the referendum. But a lot of people mm. saw it as a capitulation, mm. and, and 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 people were just terribly depressed. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, they're, I they're, wish they'd be angrier rather than than depressed. Yeah. Oh, just sad, despairing, understanding how complicated it is. And yet he got re-elected. Yeah, well, yes, he did. He did, because people understand. You know. Look, it's very, the very interesting thing looking closely at politics in Europe. Um, that there, is a, there is a much higher level of appreciation of the complexities, of understanding, of communication, of relations between the politicians and and um, the populace in general, and in particular the, the, the social movements and the, um, you know, the, the, the environments from which they come. There's a, there's a better relation um, between um, advisors, uh, you know, academics um, and, and politicians, um, is, is a, you know, a theme that Kevin and I have been discussing for some time now. And, and so there's a, there's a richer understanding of what's going on and and because of that a, a, a kind of a forgiveness you know people people understand that that you know they're, they're they're between a rock and a hard place and and there's far less of this kind of vicious punitive uh mentality that we see here in mm. australian politics the wonder the wonders of question time in the australian parliament mm. After parliamentary democracy has, you know, failed so spectacularly in Greece, you'd think that they would move to, you know, people would move for another system. Well, that's being extensively talked about, of course. I mean, the, the, the possibility of returning to the drachma um, is, is a, 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 real, a real possibility. Um, it seems like the only possibility, really. Eventually, they're just going to have to do it. Well, no, they're not. No, it's not the only possibility. That's the problem. I mean, the, 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 the point is that they were actually running out of money and they didn't have drachma printed. If they were to be... If, if they were to have been very serious about returning to the drachma, they would have had to have had the, you know, the printing presses and, 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 the, and the infrastructure in place about 18 months prior to the crucial decision and referendum. Uh, I mean, you can't leave a, 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 a country of... 60 million people without money mm. um, that, and they don't have a sufficient um, subsistence agri- you know, ag- agriculture and economy for people to be able to survive on what they grow. They need to be able to import uh, food <laughs> among other things. Um, so, no, there, there, was, there was very much an alternative to going to the drachma and that, and that was accepting the bailout. Uh, had they gone to the 
had, had they put the negotiations in place to go to the drachma 18 months ago, then, of course, that would have really crueled the negotiations with the EU. You know, so, again, they were stuck in a very, very difficult position. Um, and it, it, it's really... It was really quite a fascinating thing to, to, to look at. I mean, on, on, on the one hand, you've got, in Athens, there's, there's, nobody really knows, but it's estimated that between 30 and 40% of the housing stock is unoccupied, <clears throat> unoccupiable. Uh, there's not a big culture of squatting um, <clears throat> in Greece, interestingly. Um, um, but there is a housing crisis. Um, and uh, a lot of people can't afford market housing that you know that that, that is available for rent. Um, so while I was there, my colleagues and I were asking, well, isn't this a good time to start um, buying up um, abandoned properties? Um, at, at very low rates, you know, with, 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 with government funds. I mean, there is some money there. And the response to that is, well, there's two problems with that. Number, number one, Greece doesn't... There is not a culture of compulsory acquisition and, and there's not a culture of state ownership. There's, there's no social housing. All, all, all of the housing is, um, is, is privately owned or, or, or run by housing associations and, and NGOs. So the idea of the state stepping in and acquiring housing would have been seen along, among large parts of the populace as, as, um, as, as robbery. Mm. <laughs> the second problem is that whatever assets the state does acquire, because of the austerity measures being imposed by the EU, they have to then sell at highest <laughs> economic value so that they can give the money to back to the, to the, um, to the Euro European Bank and the Germans. <laughs> so like, that option is completely removed. You know, and when you actually start to understand the, the complexity of that arrangement and this sort of sense of no way out, you start to kind of feel the... the um, the grief. <laughs> this is Greek tragedy being played out in all of its complexity and everybody gets it, you know? It's really fascinating. Mm. So, in the light of that, it was really quite amazing to see the forms of self-help. Um, and I think that is the real alternative. I don't know about going back to the drachma, but, but uh, people are, you know, social centres... We, I, I visited a, um, a, a community health centre that's run entirely by volunteers, um, volunteer doctors coming in and, and, and nurses and giving their time after work, donating practices, surgeries that have gone out of business because nobody can afford to pay them, donating their, uh, their equipment. Um, uh, some, some small pharmaceutical companies donating um, drugs and medicines, amazing. So there's this whole um, kind of completely volunteer, completely free healthcare system being organised on a local community level. And people were saying, this is amazing, we have our community back. I can't tell you the number of times I heard people saying, we're happier now <laughs> we have been in years. Really extraordinary stuff. Mm. Mm. All right, just as, as, an, as an aside... Of, that of sounds a, really amazing, though. Yeah, a country that's ostensibly had all <laughs> ostensibly left-wing governments of PASOC over many years and no public housing. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it um, is. the, um, but, that, but that's the importance of appreciating different cultural bases, you mm. know? I mean, and, and that's why it's, it's not easy to just sort of go to one country and say, oh, look, they do that there, you know, why don't we do it here? It's just, you know, it's, it's much more complex than that. And yeah. moving on to Berlin then on Germany, because um, you're currently doing a book apparently about... Um, you are, aren't you, writing a book about... Um, housing stuff. Are you writing a book at the moment? Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the enthusiasm is, is bubbling over in the studio here. Um, we're comparing Australia, Germany, Canada. Now, um, Berlin, um, I read an article just this morning that you wrote, well, you, not you wrote, but you were involved and quoted in quite extensively. Um, and clearly, um, there's a most different approach to public housing and housing generally in Berlin than there is in, say, Australia. Indeed. Um, do you want to ask me specifically, or do you just want? Me well, to well, I think generally, because you talk about the fact that, in fact, where there have been some attempts to uh, to, to to attack public housing or, or attack um, low income housing, etc., there's been all sorts of protests, etc. So people yes. do get out and fight for it. <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is is that Germany is is a completely 
um, different kettle of fish uh, and, and uh, at, at, at its peak, fifty uh, percent of the of the uh, housing stock um, was in some way uh, <clears throat> nominated as affordable housing, either social housing or co-op housing, or you know there's lots of different forms of housing in Germany, so it's a bit difficult to you know <clears throat> c- compare it with our system here, but. But, you know, here it's about five percent, isn't it? Here it is about five percent, indeed. Um, um, so, so Germany is, of course, coming off a very high base. But it, 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 like every other place in the world, is not immune to to neoliberal policy and 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 austerity measures and uh, the you know the the the, uh, the logic and imperatives of of, um, of, of neoliberal and right wing governments. And so there has been sales of social housing stock and probably more insidiously there have been um, sustained rent increases in social housing stock so a lot of it a lot of the social housing is is um, rather bizarrely more expensive than the kind of lower end of the private rental market Mm. Um, so there has been indeed um, a great deal of resistance um, to this trend, particularly in Berlin, because it's you know sort of become such an it city. It's gentrifying. It's the housing stock is now um, <clears throat> vacancy rates are becoming very scarce. Um, if they're very low, whereas historically they've been very high, which was part of what made it, you know the whole kind of poor but sexy Berlin thing was that that. There was so much vacant stock. It was just, you know, it was really easy to pick up you know, a, a rental uh, or you know, a purchase very cheaply, and that was part of the problem. So the, so the whole city is full of Australians and Americans and Canadians and Spanish and <laughs> from everywhere buying cheap property, um, and yeah, it's, <laughs> it's quite a nightmare. And a lot of people putting buying investment properties and putting them on the Airbnb market, which is a really interesting thing just in itself to look at, because of course on Airbnb they can get four times um, the rent that they would they would get if they put it on the local rental market. So the consequence of all of that is that is that um, it's actually becoming very hard to find housing in Berlin. So so there was a referendum held in Berlin recently. I love these European systems of referenda. Um, it's they they they're not always used to good effect, but they often are. Um, the referendum essentially argued for uh, increasing the, the, the social housing stock, so buying up um, social housing that had been previously sold, uh, and uh, imposing a rent cap uh, on, on all affordable housing rents. Uh, and it was successful. Um, and again, this comes back to the relation between... Um, you know, the politicians and the social movements from which they come, particularly the Greens and the SPD, the, the you know, the sort of Socialist Party. Um, the referendum needs to go through a number of steps before it actually comes into law, but it looks like they're not really going to have to go through that next mechanism because the politicians in the city government uh, are already sitting up and saying, yeah, OK, we hear it. And, 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 they're, and they're now in a process of, of, of um, meeting with the organisers of the referendum uh, and, and, and other social movements and kind of nothing out, basically, the, the content of the reform. And how is this all um, affected by the squatting movement? Um, the squatting movement is, is, is um, a, a strong and important part of the, of the social movements um, that are, that are driving the, the, um, the agenda for reform. Um, the article in the Saturday paper that you're referring to was looking at a, um, an organisation called Cotty & Co um, around Koppelsator in Kreuzberg, uh, and that arises from the squatting movement, and it's sort of evolved into a, uh, you know, a, a very strong social housing, affordable housing advocacy group. Hmm. Yeah, and and you make the point, of course, that people there often have long term. You know, they, the renting is more is is more common than owning, unlike Australia. Uh, but renters have much more um, you know, long term leases. They live there for years. They can't be thrown out as quickly. Rents are much better controlled. So it clearly it's a quite different situation. Yes, indeed. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that that, um, that we that we in Australia can can take from all of this. 
Um, and in a sense, I would start with um, um, strengthening tenant protections here. Uh, I mean, we still have the situation where um, where, where tenants, if, you know, if, if they're on the usual sort of you know month-to-month rolling lease after the first year of fixed term, they can be uh, evicted without reason with with, with sixty days notice. Uh, and so, of course, in this kind of churning, buying, selling, renovating, demolishing, rebuilding sort of thing that you know Australians seem so obsessed with. Um, the the possibility of, of of selling with vacant possession is very easy with the prospect of maybe getting a little bit more on return. Although if it's going to be an investor investor property, it then goes back onto the market. Sometimes, not always. Um, and 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 the tenants that were there have been thrown out, and <laughs> there's this process of getting another tenant in. I mean, it's the amount of churn in our market and the amount of dispossession um, and 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 people being made. Effectively, you know, homeless you know, temporarily is, is is absolutely absurd. There, there, there are a lot of things that we need to address there. Um, <clears throat> and one of the other things that I write about is, as some of your listeners would know, probably is, is is the impact of negative gearing and the discount on gap, uh, on, on capital gains tax um, in in um, driving um, demand for investment properties. Um, and my argument there is when that's combined. With the um, <clears throat> demand for, from from overseas buyers um, for just a safe haven to park money, essentially um, <clears throat> from from you know, very unstable economies. <clears throat> Excuse me. When when those two things are combined, what we have is in in effect an infinite level of demand for investment properties, which means no matter how much more you build, you're not going to satisfy that demand because there's no limit to how many investment properties can be owned yeah so so there's this this there's this furious churn in the market in a sense with the supply increasing in supply driving an increase in demand particularly in the international uh, field but also you've got these incredibly um weak tenant protection laws that that are kind of the other end of the equation um, you need to address them all at once, really, um, but it wouldn't be too much of a, of a throw to reduce the incentives for <clears throat> investment properties, phasing out negative gearing, getting, a, getting rid of the discount on the capital gains tax, um, which is, you know, <clears throat> which is massive. I mean, it, I, mean I, I don't know, not, not many people talk about this discount on the capital gains tax, but, but just, just to explain it very quickly, what it means is that when you sell your property and you get a capital gain, and obviously in the Australian housing market um, <clears throat> that, that happens, 50% of that capital gain is tax-free. Yeah. That was an initiative that was brought in under, un, under Howard in the 90s. I mean, what other form of income can you get that is, is, is tax-free? I mean, it's an extraordinary... Company profits? Pardon? Company profits? Yeah, well, some... <laughs> they're not supposed to be. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, um, but anyway, it's, so, I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous system um, and, we need, and we need to have a, ta- a tax on 100% of the capital gains, which doesn't mean that you're losing your entire capital gain. It just means that it's treated as income and you pay tax on it. Uh, anyway, if, 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 you, if you phase out those things, then that will start to suppress demand, uh, which will take out a little bit of the churn uh, at the local end. If we charge parking fees um, to uh, foreign um, investors, um, then we are not only dampening demand there as well, but we are actually starting to gain um, an enormous amount of income from the savings. So just explain what you mean by parking fees there for people who might think you're talking about cars and garages or something. Foreign investors who, who, who buy investment properties in Australia um, should, should, should pay, a, pay a fee for being able to own property in Australia, non-citizen ownership. So you're saying they're parking their money? They're parking their money, absolutely. There's a lot of evidence of that in, in, um, in Australia and in Canada in particular because those two countries came through the GFC you know, relatively well uh, and, and now continue to offer prospects of capital gain on resale uh, and their stable economies and there's no risk of 
you know, the tax regime changing dramatically or the government actually deciding that it's going to, you know, compulsory acquire. So, yeah, there's a lot of people from, from I mean, you know, obviously people think of China and China is the most conspicuous, but it's, you know, China is only a very small part of it. A lot of it's coming from the USA. Um, after the, after the, uh, you know, the, the subprime mortgage crash there, I mean, property is worth nothing in, in, in um, parts of America. So it's a lot of American money coming into Australia, a lot of European money. I mean, you know, where are the, where, where, where are the, what are the, uh, the rich Greeks doing? They're certainly not investing in Greece. Um, so, so Australia and Canada are becoming, you know, very, very good prospects for safe investments and property is one of the best. Um, and, well, there's another additional concern, um, and that is that um, a lot of these properties, we don't know how many because we don't keep the figures. It's, there's, no, there's no data collection on this, but <clears throat> Prosper Australia has done some pretty interesting work on, um, you know, on, on, in, in its speculative vacancies reports. But there are estimates that up to 25% of these investment properties are empty. Um, because the incentive is not for the long-term revenue stream. I mean, they're not being bought, um, you know, for, for, the, for the rental return. They're being bought um, to park the money uh, and, and for, for the capital gain on resale. So, yeah, charging parking fees, char- charging a, you know, whatever it might be, 1%, 5% um, tax on foreign property owners for owning property in Australia, no matter what nationality they are. So if you combine that amount of money with the savings that you got from um, phasing out negative gearing and from the returns that you would get after removing the discount on capital gains tax, that would be a massive, that would be billions, billions and billions of dollars um, of revenue to the Australian government that could then be put into affordable housing uh, <laughs> and more social housing, more public housing. And the tenant protections on the other end of that equation would kind of consolidate that kind of scenario that I'm talking about. You said in your article um, that the reason behind the um, differences in policy is is the way that uh, people in different countries see property. Like in Germany, it's seen as a, you know, housing is seen as a basic human right, whereas in Australia, it's seen as a means of wealth creation. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so, how's it seen in Canada? Um, in Canada, it's seen pretty much the way that it is here in Australia. It's it's a um, although there are there are higher levels of rental in in Canada, and and, and tenancy protections are a, a, a little bit more secure. But um, uh, but but yeah, prop. It's because it's because of the prospect of capital gains again um, <clears throat> that that keeps the Canadian and Australian markets volatile. Um, in Germany, you're not going to make that much profit on 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 a on a, a property that you buy as an investment when you go and sell it. Uh, the tax regime is much stronger; you pay higher taxes, so the incentive to invest in German property is very different to to what it is here. And obviously, combined with the secure tenant protections, why? I mean, why would you bother? I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of people actually prefer to rent. It's you know, you have you have you have freedom, you have flexibility, um, and, uh, and and um, and you also have security. Yeah, Kate. Kate well. We actually wanted to talk about a million things today, and as usual, we're going to run out of time. But one other area, just back home again, um, the continual change of government means every time we get a change of government, we get a new plan for Melbourne, uh, which can't be very good for overall planning. But also involved in all those is that dichotomy between the need for higher density living, they say, uh, in inner urban or middle suburbs, plus... Uh, people calling for a control on the on growth on the outer fringes, yet the growth just keeps happening as well. So we're seeing all sorts of contradictions taking place. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, that, that, that actually feeds into what we've just been talking about. I mean, part of the problem with the higher density housing that's being built in the inner city, you know, particularly around Docklands and South Bank and what's proposed at Fisherman's Bend and, 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 and South Yarra and so on, is actually housing product designed for the investor market. <clears throat> it's high rise, high security, high cost, uh, low maintenance, um, and, and, uh, and, and, and obviously not affordable. So 
one of the key problems is it's actually not addressing housing, local housing need. <laughs> so it's not it's not contributing anything to the pressure to expand um, because it's just not available to um, <clears throat> to the low to middle income housing market. You have to look at how the housing market as a series of sub-markets. So, yeah, <laughs> firstly, if you, really, if you are really concerned about addressing urban sprawl and catering to, um, to local housing demand, we have to control and have more control over the type of housing that is being built in, in the areas that are, uh, that are consolidating. Uh, that would be a start, um, but we also need to enforce the, um, the, 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 you know, the density requirements on the perimeter, <laughs> which we don't do that either. Southbank's quite interesting because um, I read that speculative property report that you mentioned earlier, and something's like 17% of uh, housing in, in Southbank is vacant, which is pretty incredible. And then I've had a look at some of that housing, and, and some of it doesn't even seem that fit for you know, keeping a person in and that and the advertising on that housing is all about speculation. You know, these are houses yep. that are being built without kitchens or, you know, with a shared bathroom between. Yep. Yeah. And then, yep. you know, are these like crazy, crazy prices and, and people are buying and selling them, but nobody's ever actually living in them. Yeah, well, uh, as I was saying, I mean, we don't we don't know what the figures are exactly, and there are different estimates. But yeah, look, I I I, I think from all of, from all of I've looked at all of the reports that make estimates, and 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 my my reading is we're probably up to twenty five percent, up up to a quarter of the apartments in uh, in in Docklands and South Bank um, are probably empty. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. So you know you can't just go around saying, as you just made the point, you can't just go around saying we need to we need to build more housing. No, we have to we have to be very specific about the type of housing that that um, that, that we're going to build, and you know that all comes down to uh, to regulation, to to politicians' um, willingness uh, uh, and, and and capacity to regulate, uh, and and the um, and, and the industries willingness and capacity to accept regulation. Uh, and, and that's where Australia is just so extraordinarily weak. Also, um, the other, and, the other yeah. thing with the Docklands is um, it seems like it would go under. Uh, you know, it's very, very, very low-lying. And, you know, with global warming, mm. it, it just doesn't seem like they uh, have a very long-term plan for it. Oh, I don't think it's about long-term plans at all. <laughs> I think it's about very short-term plans. It's one short-term of the few positives of global warming, yeah, I would have thought. If it sinks in 50 years, yeah, who cares? Mm. Just, just saying that's probably one of the few positives of global warming, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, time is up. Oh, yeah, we'll, grab you, we'll grab you back next year. We're going to get you much earlier next year again because right. there's so much we need to talk about. But thanks for your time today and, right. um, and good, luck. good luck with that book you're so enthusiastic about. I'll talk to you next year. <laughs> okay, Kate, thanks a lot. Kate Shaw there, who's a... Future urban spell. geographer. Future, urban geographer. Future geographer, fellow. Future fellow, all that stuff. Excellent. And next week's our last program for the year, we and it's housing. So more housing next week. More housing. Yeah. Mm, great. And you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM or on 3cr.org.au. The time is 9.58 and this is Macromantics with Conspiracy.